MashaAllah, it's great to see people happy and people enjoying themselves, alhamdulillah. We know that the Prophet said, that no people come together uh, to study the Qur'an and engage the Qur'an and ponder on the Qur'an in one of the houses of God, meaning the Masajid, except that the angels descend upon them, that tranquility descends upon them, and that the angels, alhamdulillah, make dua for them. And then we have, mashallah, a large number of people on Facebook Live. So we hope that this can be an extension of their own sakina uh, and tranquility, uh, insha'Allah ta'ala. Uh, we now move on to the sixth verse of the 49th chapter of the Qur'an. After a'udhu billahi min shaitan rajeem, Allah subhanahu ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhal amanu, O believers, إِنْ جَاءَكُمْ فَاسِقٌ بِنَبَئٍ فَتَبَيَّنُوا أَنْ تُصِيبُوا قَوْمًا بِجَهَالَةٍ فَتُصْبِحُوا عَلَى مَا فَعَلْتُمْ نَادِمِينَ Allah says, O believers, if a sinful person comes to you, fasiq. A fasiq is someone who is not privately sinful, but a fasiq is someone who is publicly sinful. Fisq is, is actually used uh, for a type of date that grows abnormally. So you see it, it's grown abnormally. It's called fisq. So a fasiq, we cannot call someone a fasiq based on assumption, but it has to be something that's very clear and very deliberate also. Someone may be inadvertently making mistakes, but like just to come out with it and just put all my dirty laundry out there for people. So if someone like that comes to you, be nabi'in. Naba means news, information. Prophets are called anbiya, because from the same word, nabi, because they give us information. Fatabayyanu. There's a different qira'ah, fatuthbitu. Fatabayyanu, fatuthbitu. Both qira'at, both of these recitations are from the seven which means you have to make sure that this information you have to investigate and make sure that what they're saying is truthful. Do not agree with their conclusion until you've taken the proper steps to make sure that what they are saying is true. And tusibu qawman, because you may, and the word tusib is like musiba, you may become a, a trial for people you may inadvertently, by believing the information of this sinful person, be someone who is a, the cause of a musibah in the life of others. You may harm them. And then after that, after you've hurt those people and then the truth has come out, you may later regret what you've done. Nadam. Nadam means to regret. So we'll talk about four things about this verse, inshallah. Number one is why was it sent? Number two, the danger of haste. Number three, that we should make sure we confirm information. 
actually five things. Number four, forgiving people who act under duress or out of like emotion, uh, are overcome by a situation, react to it. General rule of thumb is we should be forgiving and patient with them. But we still hold them accountable, but like in a way that has you know, the opportunity for redemption. And then the last thing is how we, how we see people in general, how we engage people, uh, especially within in the community. So we'll talk about those, those five things, inshallah. The first is, why was this verse sent? Uh, the, 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 most of the people that mention uh, the sabab of nuzul, the reason why this verse was sent, is they note that the Prophet Wasallam there was a tribe. They accepted Islam in the sixth year in Medina. Banu Mustalaq. And uh, this tribe, they were known to be hard, you know. They were known to be very tough people. And they were very intimidating. The battle of Mustalaq was like, it wasn't easy. It was a very difficult battle uh, between the community of the Prophet and this tribe. And so they, they had a reputation of handling business, you know. And the Prophet shortly after, you know, things had settled down later on in Medina, he dispatches Al-Walid ibn Uqbah ibn Abi Mu'ayyat. So Al-Walid ibn Uqbah ibn Abi Mu'ayyat. He dispatches him to Bani Mustalaq to see how they're doing and then to collect zakat from them. <clears throat> they're one of the earlier tribes also to give you a background of Bani Mustalaq who apostated against Abu Bakr. So like these were rough people, <laughs> they're known to be tough and they had a harsh reputation. Uh, Al-Walid he's dispatched and he, on the way um, there's two narrations, one narration is like he himself, as he got close to where they lived, he started to get cold feet, man. Because he was like, these are some bad dudes. And he got scared. So he, he, he fled. Comes back to Medina and to cover, basically says like, they haven't really accepted Islam and they've refused to give zakah and like, they're crazy. So the Prophet sends Khalid bin Walid, he sends, uh, sends Khalid bin Walid to them and he finds out that no, they're still mashallah and they're still mashallah. So Sayyidina Khalid comes back and tells the Prophet what happened and then this verse comes. Ya ladina amanu in ja'akum Commanding us to make sure that when we hear things we confirm it. The other narration states that Al-Walid, as he got closer to the, the, uh, the area where Bani Mustalaq lives, lived, they became excited. So they like mounted their horses and camels and they, they set out to greet him. So he saw them coming, man, and he was like, oh God, this is Bani Mustalaq. So he bounced. He got scared and he like bolted and he went back to Medina and oh my gosh, they're coming to get us, they're coming to kill us all. Because that's what they were known for. And then they came to Medina and they're like, 
Assalamu alaikum rahmatullah. And then the verse was sent. Point is, the verse is sent when someone is offering information that we need to verify. And we need to make sure that it's true. The second is that the Prophet after this happened, he, he said, which teaches us something very important. The Prophet says to be impulsive is from Satan. To rush in a state of, from impulse is from Satan. But to be strategic and nuanced and tempered is from Allah. Sometimes even in, in the cause of good, we allow our emotions to get the best of us. Mutanabbi, mashallah, uh, Mutanabbi is a great poet. He said, Arra'yu qabara shuja'a shuja'ani hiyal awwal huwal awwal wa hiyal mahalu thani. Mutanabbi said, he's a great poet, great philosopher. He said, Arra'yu qabara shuja'a that to think before you act in, the, in, the, in, in, the, in a state of bravery, to think before you do that is two braveries. Right? So, meaning, like, make sure that your emotions don't get the best of you. So, here we see that Al Walid allowed his emotions to get the best of him, he acts in haste. And that haste leads him to a bad decision. So the Prophet says, Al Ajala, he said, Alayhi salatu salam, that, you know, Atta'anni min Allah. You know, to, to keep your composure and then to act is from God, meaning a gift from God, a blessing of Allah. Wal Ajalatu min ash shaitan, and to rush as he had done. Oftentimes our emotions get the best of us. I worry when I see people parenting out of fear. Sometimes you ask parents, what's the biggest motivating factor in your life for your kids? Fear. Fear is good as long as it's behind you, but when it's in front of you, it's a problem. You ask people, why do you want to get married? I'm scared, man. What are you scared of? I don't know. It's probably not like, main reason you need to be getting married. You fear falling into haram, you fear evil, okay, that's part of why you get married, but there's a lot more other reasons. So sometimes when I see people parenting out of fear, that fear pushes them to over-parent their children. And instead of being advisors, they become supervisors. One of our teachers used to say, if this is a wall, this is parenting, okay? In the middle is the child. So that wall is big enough so that the child can move and the wall moves with it. Very rarely is it gonna hit that wall. He said, but if you parent like this, you seal that wall up, the child's gonna escape, man. And when that child escapes, inna fatahna laka fatham mubina, man. They're never coming back. Ahmad Shawqi, sometimes the converts too, I'll get to Shawqi in a minute, 
where conversion is out of fear. So we lose all our friends, we turn away from our parents, we run away from our past life. One time I had a convert, he said, I am no longer the person I was. I said, well then who are you? He said, I didn't ask myself that question yet. I said, no, but who are you? Who have you become? I, I don't really know. I, said, I mean, that's a problem. Ahmed Choki, he warns us about the danger of impulsive reactions. It doesn't mean that we're not strategic in our fear. Yeah, I'm strategically worried about my children. I'm strategically worried about my financial situation. You know, not being strategically worried about our financial situation had everybody talking about Bitcoin. What happened with that? Everybody mining. And also in our relationship with Allah. And that, that impulsive type of relationship with God leads us to be somewhat unrealistic in our expectations. Oh, I'm going to go to this class with uh, uh, such and such and it's going to change my life. Well, I hope your life is not that simple that it could be drastically changed by one class. Are you that simple of a person? I mean, that's like saying, you know, I'm going to watch a TV show and it's going like, to change my life. Like, is your life that simple? Or should I look at Umrah, Hajj, conventions, scholars, studying as drops in a bucket? But the bucket is you. So those are all like components. So people tend to like look for like that knockout punch, the knockout of the nafs. And, 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 and content providers need to be very careful how they market things to people. If you take this class, it's going to change your life. We're not evangelical Christians, man. With all respect to evangelical Christians. That's not how we market ourselves. No, no. If you take this class, you're going to learn, hopefully, some things that will help you improve your life. Hopefully. When I memorized the Quran, I said to my teacher, man, I can't wait to memorize the Quran so I can become a good person. He said, don't good people memorize the Quran? Like, why would you be here if you're a bad person? Like, why would you memorize the Quran, right? And then he said, it's not the Quran that makes you a good person, it's tawfiq of Allah. So we need to be very careful about, we learn something from what Al-Walid did, allowing impulsive emotions to be the ultimate factor in calibrating our actions. Al-Ra'yu qabala shaja'a shuja'ani huwa al-awwalu wa hiya mahalu thani. Mutanabbi said, to think twice, to think before you act in the name of bravery is two braveries. And Ahmad Shawqi, he mentions a very beautiful poem about an ant consumed by fear and that fear becomes the the motivating factor in the, in, the, in the strategy of that ant I want fear behind me I don't want fear in front of me I want fear to push me sometimes but I don't want it to stop me like so that it creates this reactionary impulse he says he said there was an ant that was walking on these there's these hills outside of Cairo it looks like this, but a lot smaller than the mountains here. They're called muqattam. So this ant was walking on this hill. 
As the ant was walking, it realized it was on this big hill and it went like, <coughs> like its legs went out from under it. And then the ant said, Oh my gosh, I'm an ant. Ants don't climb big hills. I ain't made for this. And then it began to lament its state and it, it walked itself into destruction. Oh my gosh, I come to over, my life is done. Became very anxious, anxiety consumed it. So he said, Fajarat And it, it started to flee because when people get scared, it's like white girls in the horror flicks. They run and trip. Right? Or the white guy. Run and trip every time. We all know what's gonna happen. So the ant began to run. It's running. I gotta get off this hill. Oh my gosh, I'm not an ant, I'm an ant, I don't belong on a hill. Run, 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 run. It said, Sakatat fi shibrima and huanda And he said, then the ant fell into a puddle. And Shaqi says something funny. He says, a puddle to an ant is an endless ocean. And then it began to drown in a puddle, man. And as it began to drown, it says, you know, Salamtu man Like, why did I listen to my fears? Why did I allow those fears to be what calibrates my strategy? Fear is real if it's real. But if it's not real, it shouldn't consume me. It shouldn't control me this way. Like him, he gets scared. He sees them coming at him and he's like, Oh snap, I'm out of here. They're coming to kill us. Oh Messenger of Allah, Banu Mustalaq is coming. It's, it's over with. Luckily the Prophet was like, Hold your horses, buddy. But imagine if Khalid just went in there with an the army and started wrecking shop. And Shoki says, after the ant says, you know, like, why, why did I listen to my fears? Shoki said, exactly. Exactly. Never fear something in your mind that you think is great. Because what you may inadvertently run into is more dangerous for you. Like you ran down the hill, and what did you run into? A puddle. But if you just kept climbing the hill, it'd have been gravy. You'd be at home with your kids eating ant food, and of course, watching the movie, ants, right? Life would have been good. Same thing with Walid. If he had not listened to his fears, stayed calm. How many marriages have I seen wrecked by this kind of stuff, man? Where you been, baby? Uh, I was out praying to Shah, really? You were praying Isha for 25 minutes? Yeah, it was, he, he led like, he read a long salah today. Or we do this a lot with our wives. Where have you been? I was at the mall. Really? And, and that's, man, that's not good. That's nastiness. That's, that's ratchetness. Ratchetness of the nafs. I've seen shaitan destroy a lot of marriages with this kind of nonsense, man. The simple thing to do is believe each other. SubhanAllah, there was a couple once, mashallah, I love this couple. And they were arguing in my office. I don't do marriage counseling, so don't even think about it. <laughs> I, I, I believe you need 
professional people to do that stuff. But they are friends of mine, so they're in my office and they start arguing. And then his wife said something that really was beautiful, man. And then he said it back and it changed the whole, you know, the intensity was kind of getting hot, you know? Like, I was like, I think I need to leave, you know? And I can call y'all an Uber. And then he said to his wife, uh, his wife said to him, you know what, baby? If you said it, I believe you. He said, thank you. And I believe you too. And then they were good. And they went out and like had some, you know, whatever, man, on a Muslim date night. So in general, unless there's qara'in, unless there's really strong evidence of things, we should stay away from those kind of assumptions that lead to impulsive behavior. We do it with our kids all the time. It's very hurtful, it harms their psychology when they've done nothing wrong, but we treat them as though they're guilty. That's tough, man. You talk to young people, they feel like, man, I'm really trying to do what my parents have asked me to do. But still, they assume I'm not doing what they've asked. That's very counterproductive. We're gonna talk about this later. But we take a lesson from Al-Walid. The danger of assumptions and haste, and acting and allowing impulsive behavior to be controlled by anxiety and fear. Anxiety is real. I mean, people, people struggle. Anxiety is no joke. Don't get me wrong. We have a dua for anxiety. But if anxiety is causing me to make bad decisions in my life and to harm the people around me, that's problematic. The third is that we learn to confirm information. This verse teaches us, man, when we hear things about people, we hear things, rumors, unless of course those rumors involve, you know, something illegal, violating someone's rights, those are things that need to be seriously considered. But we're talking about day-to-day -day ratchetness. Those are the kind of things that we need to make sure are true. And how we do that's different for everyone, but the verse is ordering us to do it. And the last is that the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't punish Al-Walid. Why? Because anxiety is real, man. Uh, Islam is concerned with the emotional health of people. Islam is worried about the psychological states of people. The Prophet said, al-Muslim." To make a Muslim happy obligates Jannah. The Prophet said in the Sunnah of Imam Abu Dawood, smile and prepare yourselves and look sharp because you're going to meet your brothers and sisters. You know, Allah mentions that one of the, 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 the qualities of a cow that should be slaughtered by Bani Israel, that it brings happiness to people who look at it. We see in different readings of the Qur'an that Allah is concerned with the psychological and emotional health of people. Allah says in Surah Al-Imran, أَصَابَهُمُ الْقَرْحِ This is Hafsan Asim. Mean, meaning that they were, after Uhud, the Sahaba, were hit with something that affected them physically. It, it pained them physically. Qarh means physical pain. Riwayat of Sayyidina Shu'bah on Imam Asim. Second way of reading it from Imam Shu'bah, 
Also from Asim. Asim has two qira'a, one qira'a, two riwayat. Hafs and Shu'bah. Sayyidina Shu'bah says, Asabahumul qurh. Not qarh, qurh, dhamma. The word qurh means a emotional pain. So one of the qira'a means physical pain. The other qira'a means what? Psychological pain. When Allah talks about the Quraysh, He mentions that one of the blessings He gave them was what? وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفٍ Think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know the idea of not being scared. The idea of not being intimidated. Allah says about the Quraysh, we secured them from fear. Then we sent them a prophet. So obviously Islam is concerned about people that are struggling. So the Prophet ﷺ, when they find out what Al-Walid did, he doesn't punish him, he doesn't chastise him, he says, أَتَّأَنِّي مِنَ اللَّهِ وَالْعَجَلَةُ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ He says to Walid, if you had been you know, more composed and tempered, that would have been from God. But rushing impulsively is from Satan. The opposite also holds true. Sometimes out of happiness we do dumb things, man. Sometimes we get happy. We say things or do things sometimes out of happiness. We know the famous hadith of Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam about the man who loses his camel in the desert and he begins to look frantically for his camel and he can't find it and then suddenly he looks up and there's that camel. He says, Allahumma anta abdi wa ana rabbuka. <laughs> he said, Oh Allah. He was so happy. He said, Oh Allah, you are my slave and I am your Lord. But the Prophet said that Allah forgave him because of his happiness. We know that in the hadith of Sayyidina Suhaib, this hadith is sahih about the man who enters Jannah. The last person to enter paradise. And initially he will be brought out of hell and washed in a river. He will come out of that river and he will see something. He'll say, oh Allah, can you bring me closer to that tree? And Allah will say to him, yes, but you have to promise me. You won't ask me for anything else. Wallahi, I will not ask you for anything else. Then he'll see the gates of Jannah. He'll say, I'm sorry, I got to ask for this. Allah, can you, can you hook me up? Can you bring me to the gates of Jannah? Wallahi, I won't ask you for anything else. Bi'izzatik, I swear by you. Wallahi, wallahi. Then he will see the satat, the satur, you know, the curtains, and he will see inside. Excuse me, Ya Rabbi. He's got one more request over here. It's one small request. Allah, enter me in Jannah. Hadith says, Allah will enter that person to paradise. Then he will see the middle of Jannah. <laughs> I got one more question, man. I swear to God, this is the last one. I won't bother you anymore. Can you put me a'la darajat al-jannah? Can you give me like the highest level? 
Imam Nawi said, he took an oath in front of God, man. Wallahi, 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 wallahi. He said, because nobody could be punished for not being patient with Jannah. It's impossible. So like when people are experiencing, we learn something from these narrations, when people are experiencing, you know, emotional happiness or emotional lows, we should be merciful to them. That's why the Sufiya, they say if the Sufi, they remember Allah so much, sometimes they say something like, you know, like the guy said, I thought, excuse, because out of happiness, like one time I was in Masjid Sayyidina Hussein alayhi salam, we used to read the Muwatta every morning in Sayyidina Hussein's Masjid in Al-Qahira with Dr. Muhammad Wissam. And we saw this guy, this, country, this guy from the countryside, you know, in Egypt, the Fallahun, man. The simple people from Oklahoma, in Egypt. Their thobes are like handmade, you know what I'm saying? These are the farmers, man. So he came from God knows where, because Egypt is a huge country. That brother looked tired, man. And he walked in, he was like, Ya Hussein! You know, he yelled, Ya Hussein! And somebody told, said, don't say Ya Hussein, da 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 And then the sheikh who was with us, he said, be quiet, man, he's happy, man. Like, the dude is happy. And he said, leave the Muslimin to be happy. They got nothing to be happy about now, man. These people experiencing all kinds of difficulties, like, let this brother be happy, man. Oh, but Akhi, this is shirk. He said, this is not shirk, man. This brother is not making shirk. This is Ya Ihtiram, not Ya Ibadah. But I remember how he said, Like, leave him alone to be happy with God. So he learned something from this, this verse, even though it's in a negative connotation. Man, be nice to people, man. And appreciate the complexities of the human experience. And, and try to see where people are coming from and not act impulsively. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the seventh and eighth verse, and just to review quickly, verse number six, we hit on the following. Why the verse was sent, the dangers of assumption and haste, the importance of confirming information, and then forgiving people under duress. Or in states of extreme happiness, now, of course, if they harm somebody, that's different. Oh, I was so happy I, you know, I hit you upside the head with a bat. Like, <laughs> that's not how it works, man. <laughs> it means in their personal space, right? Once somebody harms other people, all bets are off. The next two verses, Allah says, وَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ فِيكُمْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ Know that the Messenger of Allah is with you. And fi actually means in. Zarfiyah, say in Arabic, so like, al-ma'u fil kos. The water is in the jar. So if you interpret this verse literally, wa'lam anna fikum rasulullah, anna rasul fik. The Prophet is like inside you, man. Again, this is like what we said earlier, the first verse, a use of rhetoric to show nearness, to show closeness, to show closeness, to illustrate affinity, to show mahabba, to show awareness. 
Do you think if the Prophet was alive right now, he'd be out there marching with black people? You think he'd be kneeling with Colin Kaepernick? It's a question. If the Prophet saw someone was alive now, we'll be out there with black folks? Where's our community at? Don't tell me yes and you ain't there. One of the greatest crimes of America and one of the greatest acts of shirk in history is white supremacy. And the prophet opposed idolatry. White supremacy is idolatry. One of the worst types of idolatry. When you start asking people these kind of questions, they get nervous because that type of theology is what I love Vincent Lloyd, man. Vincent Lloyd calls your grandma's religion. Grandma's religion doesn't like, oh, the sheikh has a nice kufi on. Grandma's like, I don't care. I didn't see the sheikh at the march today. Grandma's religion isn't caught up in bells and whistles, man. Grandma's religion is about putting in work, being Moses in the house of Pharaoh. If the prophet was alive today, would he be that Muslim that sits on the fence on Palestine in America? Would he be that sellout Muslim? Oh, well, you know, Palestine, that's a Palestinian issue. You know, it doesn't really bother me. Alhamdulillah, I passed my turmeric latte and my, you know, kale pizza. As I sit here as a gentrifier, alhamdulillah, I'm so down listening to Yuna. Gentrifier should be with a J, by the way. Gentrifier. Would the Prophet be on the fence on Palestine, man? In the sense of the moral and ethical commitment to occupied peoples, Native Americans? What about these brothers and sisters whose children were ripped from their arms as they came into this country, man? Isn't our Prophet the Prophet who said, Man Whoever separates a mother from her child, Allah will separate him from what he loves in the hereafter. We're not truly followers of the prophets if we're not willing to sacrifice for the vulnerable and the marginalized. Our claim to prophethood is hypocritical. And we're not truly ulaman, we're not truly sheikhs, and we're not truly imams if we're brave in the masjid and cowards in the streets. It's just how it is. It's a struggle. I consider Linda Sarsour one of the most prophetic Muslims in America today, man. You know why? She getting attacked by Muslims and non-Muslims. So we learn something. Understanding people and forgiving them and engaging people under duress or under emotional challenges. And that takes us now to the Prophet being amongst us. He's amongst us to the point that it's though the verse says he's inside you. Feek. Prophet knows you. The Prophet is closer to you than you are to yourself. The Prophet cares about us. So Allah says, وَعْلَمُوا أَنَّ فِيكُمْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ Messenger of Allah is inside you. لَوْ يُتِيعُكُمْ فِي كَثِيرٍ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ If he had obeyed you in a lot of the things that you suggested, لَعْنِتُمْ لَعْنِتُمْ means to hurt someone. It could also mean a sin. 
So the verse is saying, if the Prophet had, had agreed and acted on Al-Walid's impulse, that would have led to problems. That would have led to harm. But because the Prophet's fikum, he knows you, he understands you, he knows who you are, he knew how to navigate through that situation by the grace of Allah. That tells us something, man. If we truly want to benefit and bring khair to this country, we've got to know the people in this country, man. And if we truly want to serve our own community, we have to know each other. I really worry sometimes how Muslims, we, we dismiss each other very, like, very simplistically and, and, and very immaturely. We, all oh, these Pakis, man, all these crackers, man, all these Palestinians, all this, all that. That's, that's, not, that's not what it is to be a Muslim, man. A Muslim is, if I don't like you, I don't like you because I'm not supposed to like you. Other than that, it's all gravy. So the Prophet knows people. I had a sheikh once from Azhar. He got dispatched to a village in, in, uh, in, uh, in Mali. Got a brother here from Mali, alhamdulillah. And he was sent to, this is in the 70s, to a village in Mali. And he got there and there was a bunch of imams from, from Saudi Arabia. They also were sent to that village. Those imams from Saudi Arabia got mad at my teacher because my teacher, for the first year, half this village is Muslim. It wasn't Mali, sorry. Uh, maybe Nigeria. And half wasn't Muslim. So he said, like, I spent the first year just getting to know people's names, man. And know all, he said, I challenged myself to learn their language as best I could, to know all their names and to learn their children's names, even the non-Muslims. He said, I didn't, I didn't teach. I didn't have one class. The people in Egypt got mad at him. So how are the classes going? I ain't started the classes yet. Why? I got to know the people. And then, subhanAllah, the other people that got mad at him, brothers from Saudi Arabia, like, Sheikh, like, why don't you tell him this is bid'ah? Tell him this is innovation. Tell him this is wrong. This is wrong. You need to teach him this. Da, 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 da. The Sheikh said, do you know their children's names? No, no. Well, then how are you going to teach somebody that you haven't even taken the time to know their children's names, man? So he said for a year, and he said that most of the stuff they did wasn't bid'ah anyways. That's a different discussion. So he said, alhamdulillah, for a year I got to know them, even the Christians. We was kicking it. I went to the houses, had dinner. I gained a lot of weight. And he said, after a year, they finally asked me, are you going to teach us, man? And the other people left. They got frustrated and went back home. So he said, Alhamdulillah, I started to teach. He said, five years later, the whole village accepted Islam. He said, I didn't ask them to accept Islam. I cared about them. He said, even if they didn't become Muslim, I still cared about them. It wasn't about necessarily that for me. I'm happy that Allah guided them, but I care about those people. So now when we come into communities, each of our communities has its own nuances, its own history, its own trauma, its own responsibilities. We need to be aware of those things. Fikum Rasulullah. Messenger of Allah knows you really well. So he's not going to obey you in these impulsive acts. Because that would lead to la'anittum. It will harm you. Then Allah says very beautifully, وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ حَبَّبَ إِلَيْكُمُ الْإِيمَانِ وَزَيَّنَهُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ But Allah has made faith beautiful to you. 
And zina means ziyarat ala shay. Zina means to add something to something else, to make it like look nice. So the idea is that Allah has added iman to your fitrah, subhanAllah. And He's made iman like your nature, He's added to your nature the love of faith. Surah Nur says, Nurun ala nur. Fitrah is light, but added to that light is the light of Islam, alhamdulillah. وَزَيَّنَهُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ He made it beautiful for you in your hearts. وَكَرَّهَ إِلَيْكُمُ الْكُفْرَ وَالْفُسُقُ وَالْعِسْيَانِ and made disbelief and sin hate, hate, hated by you. So the first we talk about the danger of haste and al-walid. And in this verse we talk about knowing people, first point, and investing in people. You know in fatwa, as a mufti, you're not allowed to give a fatwa on social issues if you don't know the people. Religious issues, okay. Al-Qarafi, Al-Maliki, he said, if you don't know the slang of the people, be very careful because they may use terms in different ways that don't mean the, what, the way that you use that term. I can, I can attest to that. When I came back from Egypt to America, people were like, yo, that's on the chain. Or off the chain, I can't remember the new one. But when I was younger, it was the opposite. So like when I was younger, I said, yo, that's off the chain. Now they say, it's on the chain. I was like, what does on the chain mean? I didn't know what it meant. The meaning changed. Terminology flips. I like to tease my son sometimes, and my daughter, I use like old school terminology. I'm like, yo, that got mad flavor. They're like, it tastes good? You know, just to see that, how it works out in our lives. So the Mufti has to know people. That's why Imam, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, when he was asked what are the conditions of a mufti, he said, Ma'rifatun nas. You have to know people. The second is that Allah mentions that faith is a blessing and faith is from God. Fadlan min Allahi wa ni'mah, wallahu alimun hakim. Meaning that Allah has given you the blessing of faith and giving you the blessing of despising disbelief as a fadl. And fadl means a blessing. Fadl is something that's done beyond what's normal. So we learn that faith is a gift. Take a few more verses, inshallah, and we'll stop and take uh, questions, inshallah. And I think also you're going to pray Asr on Hanafi time, inshallah. Hanafi time? Okay. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala okay, moves from, from talking about these interactions between ourselves you know, to now talking about actual conflict. I honestly believe, after serving in nonprofits in the country for 20 years, alhamdulillah, since I was very young, that it should be a requirement for anybody who works in the mosque or serves in a volunteer capacity, in an administrative role or in a service role, to take a course together in conflict resolution. I believe it's obligatory, man. And now, NYU, because it's NYU, you know, it's no longer called conflict resolution. It's called conflict transformation. I love that, man. That's dope. Because conflict can be beneficial. Think how many times you looked in front of the mirror 
and said, I ate so many samosas. It's conflict transformation. Conflict transformation. When Carl Malone decided to leave the Utah Jazz and join the Los Angeles Fakers, I'm a Celtics fan, so thank you for Gordon Hayward, by the way. May Allah bless you for your tremendous generosity. And I hope we can get you a rookie that y'all got, man. That guy, mashallah. Although, Rookie of the Year should have gone to Jason Tatum. But this is conflict transformation. What I'm doing right now, I'm modeling it for you. Hey, let's talk about who went deeper into the playoffs. Just saying. Who dunked on LeBron? Just saying. But conflict is not always necessarily about something wrong. One of my students, Mona, young woman, alhamdulillah, she's on a podcast with me. She's very brilliant. She corrected me one day in my halak. I said, conflict resolution. She says, no, no, it's not conflict, conflict resolution. Now it's conflict transformation. It has a transformative power, but people don't know how to manage conflict. So here Allah is going to start to talk about conflict amongst the believers. So he says, وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اقْتَتَلُوا فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا فَإِن بَغَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا عَلَى الْأُخْرَى فَقَاتِلُوا الَّتِي تَبْغِي حَتَّى تَفِيءَ إِلَىٰ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ فَأَدْ فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا بِالْعَدَلِ وَأَقْسِطُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْسِطِينَ Allah says that if two groups of the believers begin to fight, hmm. We learn something from this verse we're going to talk about in a minute. Make peace between them. And if one of them refuses to come to terms, then fight the one that doesn't. Of course, this is talking to the states, not talking to us. With our, our own you know, system, we can employ other means besides fighting, right? But if one of them refuses to come to terms, then hold them accountable until they come to some, agree, to, to, to some common terms between themselves. Ila amrillah. Here amrillah means the shura, what was agreed upon by both parties is called the amr of Allah because there's a barakah in the group decision. We'll talk about it in a second. فَإِن فَاءَتْ فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا بِالْعَدَلِ وَأَقْسِتُ And if eventually they come around after you've had to rebuke them again for not agreeing the first time, then, then fix the problem with justice and equality. Inna Allah yuhibbul muqisiteen. Allah loves those people who go beyond justice. Like, qist is beyond justice. Qist means to be really, really, really honest and full of integrity in making sure that justice is met. We're going to talk about, <coughs> in this verse, two issues. The first, why it was sent. And, and then the second, we'll talk about three things. The second, the major sins don't take people out of Islam. The third, the importance of group, the group work and the importance of organizing together and working together. And that our diversity is one of our greatest assets. And then inshallah we'll stop. We won't finish the chapter. Inshallah we'll visit another time. We'll finish uh, Hujarat, and we'll take uh, questions inshallah. 
So the first, the reason that this verse was sent, according to most scholars, uh, is that the Prophet ﷺ was riding his donkey, as mentioned by Sayyidina Anas ibn Malik. The Prophet ﷺ was riding his donkey and they came upon uh, Abdullah ibn Ubay. There's a lot of lessons actually we can take from this hadith. Number one is, the Prophet rode a donkey. Let me ask you a question. In the time of Sayyidina Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, was a donkey a Bugatti? Or was a donkey the hybrid Prius? Or even like the Geo? Remember the Geo? Like, was the donkey an, M an M6? So we learned something that the Prophet is very, like, he's very frugal. Al-Bazala to Middle Iman. Prophet said, being frugal is from faith. Not, not to the point where you're shaming yourself, but just like, alhamdulillah, man, whatever, I don't, you know. Especially in da'wah. You need to be careful sometimes that da'wah is over, overly commodified, man. So the Prophet Raqiba Himaran. The Timurdi says, he rode a donkey. Sayyidina Mu'az says, Kuntu Sarasan. One time I was riding on a donkey with the Prophet. He used to even share his donkey with other people. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I worry now when I see Mashaykh treated special treatment. Actually, I wanted to eat with the people today, but alhamdulillah, the brothers wanted to talk about some stuff. Unfortunately, there was no women there. We got to change that, man. That's not fair. Um, but I, I, I worry when I see the pageantry given to teachers. The Prophet used to ride a donkey, man. I remember Jamal Badawi, man. People forgot about Dr. Jamal Badawi, man. Jamal Badawi is a beast, man. That's my man. Jamal Badawi used to come for free, man. Like, can you imagine it? Like, subhanAllah, from Canada. Imam Siraj. God bless him and help him, man. It's a difficult time for him. We used to invite Imam Siraj to our MSA events. And I don't agree with this, by the way. I, th I think people need to be paid for their time. I like what, what one Imam told me, man, I need some hush money, man. I said, hush money food for my kids. While I'm gone, my wife got to keep them quiet. <laughs> She's got to take them out. Keep them quiet, man, that's hush money. I agree with that. And people should be paid for their work. But I respect, I respect them for that years ago that we would invite them, our MSA, and we're like, Imam Siraj, we're gonna pay you. He's like, if you pay me, I'm not coming. Subhanallah, we made him, we made him take that money. I don't know what he did with it. He was like, I just wanna sell my cassettes. Remember when Imam Siraj used to sell cassettes? I just need to sell my cassettes, brother. Alhamdulillah. Or make a donation to Masjid Taqwa. Now, you know, community's calling me, saying people asking for $25,000 to give a 20 minute speech. I mean, who are you, like the Jonas Brothers? Like, <laughs> and I'm not saying any names, but those who know, like Biggie said, if you don't know, <laughs> now you know. We need to privately amongst ourselves as teachers say, listen, you should be paid. You should be paid for your work. But $25,000 for a five minute speech? That's a lot of money. It's not right, this is not Coachella. This is Dinella. <laughs> so 
So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اقْتَتَلُوا If a group of believers come together to fight, how was this sent? The Prophet is frugal. He's not riding a Bugatti. He's riding a donkey. I love that about the Prophet And they came to Abdullah ibn Ubay, the head of the hypocrites. And Abdullah ibn Ubay said, Wallahi, ra'ihatu himarik. You know, the, the smell of your donkey is like so bad. He was trying to insult Sayyidina Nabi. One of the Sahaba said, yeah, you smell worse than his donkey. <laughs> and the fight broke out, man. And the, they started fighting, and the verse came. Another opinion is that this was sent because Al-Aws was Khazraj. You know, the Aws and Khazraj are like the Latin kings and the vice lords, man. It's like the Bloods and the Crips. Same people, same ethnicity, fighting each other. And they began to argue and fight in the verse game. But the point is, this verse talks about how we can try to settle those disputes and also lets us understand that being a Muslim doesn't make you perfect. And being a believer doesn't make us perfect. Because Allah says, Al-Mu'minun iqtatalu. The believers fought each other. Fighting is a problem, it's a major sin. Qatl Muslim kufr. To kill a Muslim is kufr. But sometimes Muslims will have problems. We learn something here from that verse, that the commit, committing major sins, as Imam al-Tahawi mentions, does not take someone out of Islam. The last lesson that we take from this verse because of time is that if these groups fight, we're taught that someone should come in, come in as an outsider, arbitrate between them, and that, that decision that they all agree on is called Amr of Allah, the affair of God. We, we learn something, the value of the group, and that's the third point from the verse, the value of the jama'ah. Jama'ah meaning all of us. Prophet said, Yarullahi ma'ajama'ah, the hand of God, the help of God is with the group. In the Maliki Madhab, we have a, an axiom, Imam Khalil is mentioned in Shahr al-Kabir, that in the absence of a scholar, the community together collectively becomes the scholar. Because if there's not a mufti, the community comes together, al-jama'ah tu'tabar al-mufti bi'adami. The community comes together because Islam has to function, has to continue. But the more people you can bring to the table, the better it is. So we learn something that our institutions have to be diverse. We have to have all kinds of people engaged. And then of course the next verse, insha'Allah, إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ ikhwa, That we are like brothers and sisters. We'll stop there, insha'Allah. Barakallahu feekum wa jazakumullahu khairan. I apologize we weren't able to finish. It's a lot of information, man. Um, and that will give us an excuse to come, insha'Allah, in the future. Visit Coach Kamal, alhamdulillah, from Oklahoma today, Oklahoma, mashallah. Um, I think we scored like 100 points, man. But it's great to see people here. If you have any questions, inshallah, we can take them, and also people here online.
yeah, if you write your question, we can see it. We can also repeat that question, inshallah. You can ask anything, but any like fiqh questions, those should go to the imam. You know, questions about fiqh, things of that nature. You have an imam, you have a scholar here. Alhamdulillah, able to uh, answer those questions, inshallah. Oh, I think I left them in the hotel. Ah, oh, man, did I? Oh, no, I have them here. And also you have the questions from, from yesterday, inshallah. Shaitan does indeed, so these are some of the questions also from last night. Any difficult questions also, I will be giving to the Imam, inshallah. So, Imam Saab, inshallah. Zindagi, bebandagi, shermindagi, inshallah. So the question says, Assalamu alaikum wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Shaitan does indeed confuse us about important and less important things. We say Ameen every Jummah when we ask Allah to bring us together as a community. Wahid sufufana and so on. While we are divided here. You guys are divided in Salt Lake City? It's a small community, man. You have like two mosques? How many mosques in Salt Lake City? 16. <laughs> 16? Yeah, more than New York City, man. <laughs> Why do you have 16 mosques in Salt Lake City? Such a beautiful city too, mashallah. I mean, the Iman is like, just shoots to the earth when you breathe this clean air and you see these beautiful mountains. and It's a beautiful place, man. My friend Faisal here is also from Berkeley. Um, good to see him. So while we say, Ameen, Ameen, oh Allah, unite us. Our local leadership, okay, listen, I don't know about these things, I'm just gonna answer. So, I'm the arbitrator. <laughs> Our local leadership does not get along. How can we solve the kandurum? Dang, you wrote kandurum? On a kandurum on an index card. It's like the whole card of our leaders locally not getting along. You need to demand that they get along. You need to pressure them to work it out. Sometimes we give our leaders too much credit. But uh, we, we fail to realize that if we give them too much credit to the point that we don't hold them accountable, then it's counterproductive. So you need to create a climate where the community itself is not going to tolerate divisiveness. Number two, leaders, y'all need to fear Allah, man. Let some things go, let some division fall to the wayside, sit down, talk about the issues, build real relationships for the greater good of society. Muslims' responsibility is not just for the Muslim community, that's for everybody. So someone asking online, perhaps one of the most strange questions I've ever seen in my life. He's saying, why do you have a chair in a mosque? It's not a church. This is really just unfortunately kind of a question that's not well informed. Any type of furniture you bring into the masjid is acceptable, alhamdulillah. And of course people here, they pray, you can't see. And the brother asked the question, you should assume the best. But what if we're all handicapped? This is a mosque for people with disabilities. I hope one day we have those kind of mosques in this country. And we have to sit on a chair. Prophet said, if you can't stand 
while you pray, then pray how? Pray when you sit. Are you going to sit on the air? So, brother, inshallah, maybe you should focus more on what's being talked about instead of thinking about negative things about the community because they have a bottle of alcohol. I mean, sorry, a chair in a mosque. Is life insurance haram? You can ask the imam, inshallah, that question, inshallah. Any other questions before we, uh, before we move on, inshallah? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Yes? Is there an English? There's a book by Dr. Muhammad Hisham Kamali. It's on Amazon. On Usul Fiqh. Muhammad Hisham Kamali. It's one of the best books I've seen in English in Usul Fiqh. And in Swiss, we're going to teach a class on Usul Fiqh. I have two volume books just being edited. Make dua that it will be done, inshallah. How does, this is really a wonderful question, mashallah. How does one navigate the internal struggle of having tawakkul on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a proactive way versus accepting qadr? How does one know what path to take even after istikhara, istishara? So what path to take after praying istikhara and, and consulting people? First of all, you don't accept qadr, qadr is. You have to understand that. Qada is qada. Imam Ibn Al-Askandari said, But accepting it from the point of our existence, I understand what you mean. So Imam Ibn Qayyim makes a very, very nice point about how you balance qada with tawakkul. Tawakkul means to trust in Allah. Tawakkul means that I try my best, I make as much effort as I can, and no matter how hard I try or whatever I do, the outcome is the qada. If the qada is not good, like something bad, something which you know, doesn't uh, agree with what I've tried to do, then as long as I feel the energy to want to change that, that also is qada. It's part of my qadr. But when I begin to feel that it's impossible and other people around me are maybe saying, look, this is an impossible thing, like you're, you're pushing yourself too much, then I should realize that this perhaps is not for me. Because the Prophet said, people will find easy what they are created for. But if I start to see like a lot of obstacles, a lot of hardships to the point where it's illogical for me to continue, then that's why I should maybe say, you know what, I need to take a step back and consider other options. But akhdu bil asbab, taking all the precautions, working as hard as I can, making effort, is tawakkul. Ridha bil qada, being pleased with the outcomes, is the issue of qada. One time when Sayyidina Umar came into Syria, there was a plague, and he said, let's go. We're getting out of here. And someone said to him, man, you're running from the qada. He said, I'm running from the qada to the qada. So we don't have like fatalism in Islam. But we also accept and believe whatever is going to happen is from Allah. While we work hard.
That's all I have. Yes, sir. So one of the things that, that all Muslim nonprofits seem to be struggling with, except care, um, is the entry points into the nonprofit for volunteers. There's not a lot of entry points. If you think about the Prophet's community, there's a lot of places that people can get involved. People can contribute. It's interesting that the Prophet in the beginning of this chapter actually asks Abu Bakr and asks Umar who should be the leader. Like, that's succession planning. He's empowering other people in his community to engage issues of the community. So number one is, do we have a strategy in our community of succession planning and passing the baton to other people? That has to be like really one of the foundational attitudes of any institution. How, how do I pass this on as a succession plan? Number two is by surveying congregants and asking people in the community, what are you passionate about? What is it that would stoke your passions? And then crafting and maybe finding from those people leaders, right, to create those entry points into the community. The third is that we have to be able to evaluate our volunteer program. So, one of the things that I see in the Christian church, which is really good in the Jewish community, and in the Sikh community, is they actually have volunteer training, man. It's professional. You know, you train. So in Boston, one of the goals we had during the Boston bombing when I was an imam there, is we wanted to train 30 volunteers. So we trained 30 volunteers professionally. You find people in your community who know how to do that, you ask them, hey, can you come in and do some volunteer training? And then where are we gonna direct these volunteers? That's where you have those understandings of what makes people passionate. Maybe it's youth work, maybe it's prison work, maybe it's serving older people in the community, looking after them, buying people groceries, driving people to their doctor's appointments. I mean, there's so many things we can do in the community. And that's how you can get that kind of... People aren't going to be involved in a masjid just because it's a masjid, man. Like, that may sound sad, because they can come to the masjid anyways. But how do you tie the work of the masjid into passions and aspirations that inspire people? Well, I have to know what those aspirations are. Maybe it's after school programming. You get some of your, we, we did this before too. We had MIT students come and do math tutoring for kids in the city. People love that stuff, right? So finding those passions and then allowing people to operate without being micromanaged. We micromanage our community into the ground, man. Abu Hassan al-Nadwi, he said that the Prophet when he would send out uh, leaders, he gave them very few orders because he wanted them to, you know, share their talent. 
Our folks, we give them like a thousand little micro orders. And then we wonder why people leave nonprofits really quickly. It's a high turnover. So identifying shared aspirations, finding people that can lead and organize, volunteer training, and evaluation. Sure. Of all the teachers who have, who have taught you, who do you find the most inspirational and why? Out of all the teachers who taught me, who was the most inspirational? Uh, I mean, you get me in trouble. <laughs> Every one of them, you know, tend to be uh, what we would call self starters, self motivated. Uh, not all of them were perfect. I've had some teachers that were just really bad people. That's how life is. But there was a teacher that I had named Sheikh Ali Saleh. And Sheikh Ali Saleh uh, is from Cairo. He lives next to what's called Baba Zawela. It's a poor part of the city. He's blind, man. He's been blind his whole life. But like... It didn't stop him, you know? Like, like, what kind of excuse am I gonna have? Mashallah, I'm not blind, he's blind. So like, he was just like very inspirational in the fact that a person with disability didn't, he, he used that disability to stoke his passion instead of being a alibi not to work hard. So I really, I really appreciated that about, about him. Uh, Dr. Sherman Jackson, you know, here in America is someone who, what I love about Dr. Jackson is his ability to be Dr. Jackson outside and his ability to be Sherman with his wife and his kids, man. I, I like that. He used to say to me, I'm, I'm Sheikh and Imam outside, but I'm honey and baba at home. I, I, I like that. Like, I like the fact that he's humble and, you know, he doesn't bring the accolades past the front door. I found that, like, very meaningful, very inspirational. Take a few more questions, inshallah. Yes, sir. My most memorable experience at Azhar University. I don't think there's one. I think it depends on the context of my life. Right? Because you have two things. You have experiences, you have context. So sometimes things change. Like, oh, wow, this is really profound. Uh, I think one of the most profound uh, experiences uh, in my life there was, I had a teacher, um, Sheikh Sayyid Jibril, who's the brother of Muhammad Jibril, famous reciter. So I memorized the Quran with Sheikh Sayyid, a little bit of Quran. So we used to meet once a week and recite together. And, you know, he's the opposite of his brother, man. Like his brother's like, very, very polite, but very like suit tie, you know, very media savvy. 
You know, Sheikh Mohammed, uh, Sheikh Sayyid has never got married. He still lives a life of like very frugal life. I couldn't do it, man. I couldn't live like him. God bless him, right? So I decided to buy him some basbusa. Basbusa is like the Egyptian laddu. Like, very popular. Not the same. Perhaps, I'm not going to say which one is better. Just let you, let you as a community decide that issue. I like apple pie. But <clears throat> we, we had finished Sultaha. Uh, so I bought him like some, one, finished a jizz. So I bought like basbusa, like gulab jamun or whatever. And uh, I gave it to him, man. It's a big box. And he said like, I can't accept that. So I thought it was a typical, I can't accept it. I did this for Allah, da 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 da, whatever. I was like, look man, just take it. He's like, no, I don't have a refrigerator. I was like, what? He's like, I don't know if I want to be alive tomorrow morning, bro. I don't refrigerate anything. And I was just like, these kind of people actually live in the world. <laughs> like, these kind of, like, it's alive. Like, you know, like, there's really, like, these kind of people, right? I couldn't do that. I got a big refrigerator and a freezer in her garage. But, mashallah. So just, like, his ability just to be away from dunya, man. And it, like, haunts me because I have a teacher, you know. I had a 5 Series BMW, man, and my teacher doesn't have a refrigerator. So I got my wife and me get rid of my car. <sighs> but what I'm trying to say is, like, those experiences, people tend to talk about their experiences where their teachers as a way of, like, motivating, but also sometimes our teachers haunt us. They remind us of things we should stay committed to. Right? So Sheikh Sayyid, <clears throat> God bless him, is just like someone who really is not about the capitalist global economic empire in any way, shape, or form, man. Dude still has a flip phone, man. With snake on it. Remember snake? I was like, you got snake on your phone, dude. <laughs> who plays snake? We're playing Angry Birds. People playing Fortnite. He doesn't even know what snake is. So I appreciate that, that kind of life, even though I can't do it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Can you highlight some pros and cons of acquiring knowledge or any knowledge through YouTube these days, which is kind of trendy versus traditional scholars, traditional methodologies? So seeking knowledge, like, Versus YouTube, say studying with a person. I mean, I think I think at the same time, YouTube has a lot of danger. We're all aware of that, right? But I think also YouTube is a great opportunity for people if it's if it's organized properly. Um, so if someone is going to go on YouTube and say they study like the Sirah, you know, from A to Z, or they do like the whole Medina book series now is on YouTube. Uh, the guy who wrote it. Yeah, that's, that's a lot, there's a lot of benefit to be had in that. Uh, Sheikh Abdurrahman Sufi, like all the different qira'at he recorded on YouTube, you can listen to on YouTube. So there's a lot of benefit if the knowledge is organized. Nothing is going to be equal to having a teacher because it would be like doing workout videos and nutrition on YouTube versus having a personal trainer and a nutritionist that knows you and talks to you, does a blood test, tells you even he healthy things you should avoid. 
So that's, that's what's going to be lost, that personal touch. So it's like buying a suit online and having someone bespoke you a suit. Those are two different experiences. Both are good, but one is going to be much more aware of the nuances and subtleties that you have. The other isn't. The other problem with YouTube is how do you evaluate what you've learned? So the challenge, any real education initiative is going to have evaluation as a component of the process. Education is a process. So I think those are kind of the missing links. But for say, say like a convert man, or say a Muslim who lives, you know, where there's not a large community, they don't have access to scholars, they, YouTube brothers and sisters in prison, right? YouTube has become something very transformative. I was, I was sitting, it's funny, I was sitting with an Imam a few weeks ago, and he and this young guy were arguing. And you know, he was telling him, you know, you just take your knowledge from YouTube. He said, next thing you know, you're going to tell me you learn how to do open heart surgery on YouTube. And he pulls up a set of videos, how to do open heart surgery. <laughs> and it was really a dude doing open heart surgery in the, in the, you know, in the, in the, in the hospital. And I, he was like, right? but I, I don't see it as either extreme. I don't think YouTube is going to give anyone like a confirmed quality education, but at the same time, I think you can get a quality education. It's just not going to be evaluated and it, it won't be kind of approved or sanctioned and that may be a problem. Yes, sir. Hold on. Any, any questions here? Yeah, I mean, so do you have a question? No, I'm just happy. Alhamdulillah. Hey, if you're happy, I'm happy. You took so many notes, you don't have any questions? Huh? Okay, I answered, good answer. I answered her question. But please, don't be shy. And, and brothers, don't invoke gender to stop people from asking questions. Sayyidah Aisha said, not Monisa al-Ansar, the best women were the Ansar. Shyness didn't stop them from asking questions. Hmm. Sure, no questions. All right. Yes, sir. Do you have a white supremacy like a dog? Like the white supremacy, you discussed that. Right. The new white dog. How do you, you know, that notion is very real. People may not express it. How do you So I have to be very question, careful with this question. The question was, how is a minority, just think about this for a minute, who's being asked? <laughs> how is a minority? Yeah, but can you phrase the question again? This is interesting. How is a minority, do I? Do I? Okay, okay, 
I mean, I kind of, I'm religiously a minority, but still the recipient of white privilege. Not the best person. I just happen to have to deal with fate. Tawakul, tawakul on Allah. This is a question. No, but ask the question again the way you said it, though. Okay. And then we have people in this culture and then we have no children of white children. Yes. So of course the people who have children, I have children here, all of them have children here. Right. They have it's hard to fit in. Yeah. And they basically do it on the cost of Mudahana, not Mudah. Yeah. They basically give up on their religion, principles of their religion to sort of well let's just yeah. So I, I can answer that question from one perspective. I, could, I can answer from two perspectives. Number one is, we cannot separate, historically in this country, being Muslim from being seen as a person of color. It's impossible. Um, and that's why, you know, Khaled Beydoun has a great book out called American Islamophobia. Beydoun. Beydoun, yani. He has a book called American Islamophobia. And he has, he's now, I think, got tenure at Arkansas, so he can even say more things. Um, but in that book, he talks about the, the structural animus towards Islam from America's early inception, and how that animus was tied directly towards Muslims being seen as black, because they were black. If you look at the early slave revolts in the Western Hemisphere, I have a podcast on this with Sister Margarita Rosa, who's like a brilliant scholar out of Princeton, convert sister. And she has a great article called Yaqeen. If you look at the early slave revolts in what's now Haiti in the Dominican Republic, in the 18th century, those were led primarily by Sina Gambian Sufi Tarikas and their sheikhs. Senegali Sufi scholars who were slaves were encouraging their halaqat to think of liberation from white slave masters, the Spanish, as a religious obligation. To the extent that it's historically documented that those slaves save money to pay zakat to free their sheikhs. That's, who, that's our history as a religious community. African brothers and sisters, black American brothers and sisters, that history is even deeper because it touches ethnic, cultural sensitivities, color sensitivities. To the extent that in 1508, man, or 1708, excuse me, they passed a law to ban Muslims from South America. That's why they're not there no more. They sent them home. They're like, listen, we would rather have you back in Senegal and Mali than a slave because y'all are trouble. Second thing is, here, you look at the early court documents for naturalization in the 20th century, 100 years ago, 1915, 1913. Read the court cases where Muslims went up for naturalization. This is not the first Muslim ban, dude. This is an iteration of anti-Muslim animus that has been in this country since its inception, which is tied at the hip to anti-blackness. 
And that's why the Syrian community, and I'm sorry to say this, I'm not trying to offend any Syrians, so don't get upset. How did they negotiate their entrance into America in the early part of the 20th century? What do you check on the census box to this day if you're Arab? That you're what? That you're a white boy. Because they knew the deal. They were Christian Syrians 115 years ago. They said, look, we're the real white people and Jesus is our cousin. They legitimately argued this in court. Jesus is our cousin, he ain't your cousin. He's our cousin. Like, this is how crazy, it was so crazy that you had uh, one of the Syrian Americans in front of a federal judge was ordered to take off his shirt to show he was white. George Shisham in 1915 is a Christian, up for naturalization, gets turned down and says to the judge, I gotta say one thing, one more thing. The judge says what? He said, I'm Christian. I'm not Muslim. Judge said, Marhaban George. He got naturalized. So our struggles with black people in the name of Muslim struggles, we need to understand these things are married together, man. So when people say black lives matter, we need to say black lives matter. Because we're intrinsically tied to one another. And unlike Christianity in, in this hemisphere, we were never seen as allies to slavery, as a religion. Last point is, I can't tell you, brothers and sisters, as people of color, how you're gonna deal with my people. But I can tell you, as a white convert, I gotta deal with my people. So what I can say is, I'm an ally. And you tell me what you want me to do. And then on the other end, I gotta go to these people and say, yeah, call me. And that's why I say to white converts in America right now, you are either gonna be Moses in the house of Pharaoh or Judas with Jesus. And we need to also let these white converts, like we see our brother Shane in North Carolina, he's got Society of Muslim Rednecks. Cool, man, I, I, I get it. If you can get these moonshine making people to start making chai, and that's how you did it, and not hate us, I'm with it. And that's the last point that I will make, is we need to appreciate and, the, and that's, that's one thing that the community of Imam Muhammad did very beautifully in America. They negotiated their blackness in spite of what immigrant culture told them they could do and not do. I appreciate that, because it's not easy. Imam W.D. Muhammad, who, yeah, right? Who, for whatever criticism people want to have on them, that's between you and them. I respect the fact that culturally they knew that they, from what I've learned from them, I can't speak on behalf of a community, I'm speaking as an observer. What I was told is that they were not willing to sacrifice their social capital with their people for us. Man, I appreciate that. Because they understood our job is to our people in that sense of the word. So now, if we see some white folks who are Muslim, who may be operating a little socially in ways that we don't understand, with 
the like society of Muslim rednecks, it even rubs me the wrong way. And I'm from Oklahoma, okay? My neck is red. But I get what he's trying to do. So go rock it, dude. Go reach your people. Go handle your business. So white converts, especially those of us who have conservative relatives, neocon family members, evangelical family members, Trump supporting uncles and aunties, right? It's funny, but we got a job to do with these people. Like we have a, con un, you know, a conversation needs to be had. Look, I'm Muslim, man, we ain't like this. I'm your cousin, dude, I'm your nephew. We watch football together, dude. I drink a non-alcoholic beer with you. No, seriously. But sometimes we feel converts in general, regardless of race or ethnicity, that we can't really reach our people without being censored by, say, other cultures that don't understand sometimes the nuances of how we reach our people. So I would say we got to trust each other. I really, I really appreciate what's going on in Texas now uh, when you have this Hispanic Islamic movement that's working with the Spanish community, Latinos, and just really dealing with them at a cultural level. Of course, I'm not saying go out and vote. Me articulating white American culture does not necessarily equate to disobedience to Allah. Someone articulating a message that appeals to black culture in America does not suddenly equate to disobedience of Islam. Latino, Latino culture doesn't equate to that, but sometimes you feel that way, man. Whereas like, I got, I got to work on these people. So I think from my perspective as a white man in America, right, I got to work on my own disinvestment from privilege and then being an ally. And then I need to talk to my people, man. And, and I still don't think that white American converts, I put myself in this, have calibrated a message that reaches white folks with the same rigor and passion that black American Muslims have with black people or Latinos. Because white folks not easy to deal with, man. They're tough. Especially, you know, the Norwegian people. Tough, man, Vikings, man. But that's, that's something that strategically we are obligated to do. Our, our community is either Abu Sufyan or Abu Dhar. Before Islam. I saw our brother's hand up, yes. Yeah, so I, I, are you talking about me personally? I didn't want to be an imam, that's why I quit. Uh, I didn't study Islam to be an imam, I studied Islam because I didn't want to be the stupid white convert guy. And I just loved it. Like, I just studied it for myself. So that's why now I'm back in education. Like, as soon as I, I was able to, like, make a move, I said being an imam is like being a professional running back in the NFL, man. You know, like five, six good years, you blow out your knee. And then, look, Adrian Peterson, man, he can't even get a job. So. No, uh, I don't consider myself like, I still look at like Imam as Imam, you know, like I'm just a normal guy, man. So my career is education. But if someone wants to do that, it's awesome. God bless him. Okay.
We want to finish these three? Yeah. So, and I was told now someone said he changed it to Southern Hospitality Center. It's no longer the Society of Muslim Rednecks. I kind of thought Society of Muslim Rednecks was dope. Like, I was about to join, man. Uh, although I'm not of a red, I'm more of an urban experience. I work in the medical field and see many Muslim teens and adolescents who open up to me concerning drugs, racism, gangs, etc. Sexuality, I'm sure, is there. These teens are afraid of being judged and uh, unsupported, especially by parents. What advice can I give the kids and parents? You know, there needs to be a deliberate effort to create um, a space where you have community leaders, you have family therapists, and you have people involved uh, in community work that allows these young people to come into a, a space and deal with their challenges. And to deal with those challenges in a way in which they're not judged, and which we find them real support. We can't just tell them, read Quran. It's like, read Hadith. That's great, that's part of a healing process. But there needs to be a, a, even a mentorship model. In, in Northern California, MCA, beautiful masjid, I served in for 10 years. They created a mentorship model between professionals and high school students. Man, it was amazing. So that you were able to kind of look to see where you want to be in life. Well, here's someone who did it, and they're telling you, hey, here's some of the challenges I faced, here's some of the adversity I went through, and here's how you can make it through those challenges. That was one of the most impactful programs I've ever seen for young people, because you mentored them with what they want to be. And oftentimes when we think about what we want to be, we don't think about the work needed to get there. But when we meet that person that's reached that place, they're able to say, hey, here's the things that you need to think about. Here's things you need to be doing. Here's the kind of discipline it's gonna to take to get to this. So I think you've got to create um, some kind of space for people that is going to bring in family therapists, it's going to bring in community organizers and workers that can allow these people to come in and talk through their challenges and feel that they're not being judged and that they're being supported and cared for. What Islamic books do you think are important for young American Muslims to read? Hmm. That's a good one. I really like the book Revelation by Dr. Uh, Siraj Mohideen, Dr. Mohideen, um, on the life of the Prophet It's amazing, man. Um, Purification of the Heart by Hamza Yusuf uh, is a great book. I think the Sirah, the life of the Prophet Muhammad on YouTube that Dr. Yasir Qadi did, if you, that's, that is, mashallah, magnificent. Um, I think the tafsir of not man, I understand the controversy around whatever, um, but I think the tafsir that Nu'man Ali Khan was able to do and record uh, in English is, is phenomenal uh, and, 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 and good. I, I think Omar Suleiman, just as an example, uh, is great. I, I like the work of Yasmin Mugahed, uh, Reclaiming Your Heart. I think that's a great book to read. Um, there's a lot of good stuff out there. But I think those are some really, I think there's some impactful things, you know, uh, that I would encourage people to read. There's a great book called Essentials of Islamic Faith, written by Suhaib Webb. 
It's good. That's a good book, man. You should get that book, man. Get you a discount, inshallah. What conversations, if any, are taking place within Muslim, amongst Muslim brothers regarding male privilege? I don't know. I know that where I work, which of course is at a university, there is an effort underway to start with Imam Khalid, uh, a group for young Muslim men to talk about masculinity, expressions of masculinity at a larger level. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not aware of anything going on. So someone's asking about how is it possible to know someone from marriage? It's a question for the Imam. You ask that question about email and how do you get to know the person? I mean, that's a question you need to talk to your parents about. And also I would suggest talking to the local Imam, inshallah. Yes, sir. I don't know. You know, I think homeschooling is good when they're young. I think that public school is good when they're a little older. But I can't give you a blanket endorsement. I don't know what public schools are like here uh, in Salt Lake City. Um, I like the Quaker schools. I think they're great. Um, great education. Um, but I, don't, I can't give you an answer without evaluating the school and knowing. So I don't know. Any questions from here from our, our sisters? Zakalaw khairan wa sallallahu alayhi wa sayyidina Muhammad wa sallam alaykum wa rahmatullah. Thank you for your time and your patience and may Allah bless you and feel free to contact me uh, if you have any questions again. If you're interested in signing up for Swiss, uh, the institute that I run online, you can go to swahibweb.com, enter your email address inshallah and we will take care of you inshallah. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Yeah, it's okay. I'm going to post them too. So it's okay. Yeah, no, don't worry about that. Assalamualaikum. How are you, man? Good. I like your kufi. I like your kufi. Come, salam, How are you doing? Alhamdulillah, how are you? Fine, how are you doing? He's been wanting to come in. No, mashallah, mashallah.